All right, let's go ahead and, and get started. If you don't have um, a catechism book, we have some in the back. You might want to grab one just to kind of look at it. We'll be referring to these, to, to this pretty regularly. We're in our, our final week here of our um, confirmation prep slash catechesis time here uh, for the spring. Of course, next Sunday, we'll have our bishop here with us, and we'll actually do some confirmations, both of youth and adults, and I'm really excited about that. And, um, uh, and I, I believe we have on the schedule for the bishop to maybe just like say a few words in this kind of like catechesis after the service sort of slot. I think we have that. We've got a lot of things going on next weekend with ordinations and meetings with the bishop, but uh, I think there'll be something happening here after the service. So hang out, but I don't think it'll be anything kind of like uh, super formal. Uh, and then um, we haven't quite worked out if we'll do anything uh, catechetical for the next couple of weeks before we kind of hit our summertime schedule, but to be announced. Um, but today we're talking about becoming like Christ. That is the, the section here in our, on our catechism. We've got part one was beginning with Christ. This introduced like the gospel, what it means to be a follower of Christ. Um, believing in Christ. These were our kind of exposition of the Apostles' Creed, and we talked about theology, you know, who is God, and we talked about who is Jesus, the Holy Spirit, uh, some of the sacraments, and the life in the church as we follow the Holy Spirit. Um, last week, uh, Deacon Mary spoke a bit about belonging to Christ, as was part three in, the, in our catechism book, which focused a bit on spirituality, prayer, um, and the ways in which we show forth our, our allegiance and belonging to Christ. And that today is becoming like Christ, um, you, you might say this is a bit of our, uh, the kind of, what do we do about it, that sort of a thing. Um, and uh, and, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. But I thought I might open up with the, um, one of my favorite collects, which is the, the Collect for Ash Wednesday, which I think has a little bit of this emphasis on both justification and sanctification, which are two of the components of the section here of the Catechism, and we'll talk a bit more about that. So here this... Uh, Prayer for Ash Wednesday. Almighty and everlasting God, you hate nothing you have made and forgive the sins of all who are penitent. Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we, worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness, may obtain of you, the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So let me start with just what I think might be a little bit of a methodological point. I, I think this is kind of an uncontentious uh, idea. Uh, so it, it seems to me that what you, uh, what you think influences what you do. Uncontroversial, right? If you have an idea about something, you have a belief about something that impacts what you do you know, uh, in your day or in your life, you know, oftentimes in the morning I, I get up and I pull up my phone and I look at the weather. And you know, I might form the belief, oh, it's going to rain today, and that'll influence my actions, like grabbing an umbrella or a raincoat or staying in bed longer or what, what have you, depending <laughs> upon the, the situation. So what you think influences what you do. And in a lot of what we've been thinking about together here in our catechetical time here in the catechism has been focusing in on what we think. And what are these things that we believe about God? We believe that God is triune. We believe that... God the Father Almighty is the maker of heaven and earth. We believe that Jesus Christ is uh, uh, his son, our Lord. 
what belief things about the Holy Spirit, and et cetera, and, and et cetera. These are all the sort of think things or ideas that we learn in our catechetical um, uh, instruction here. And, the, and the, uh, the sort of traditional structure of the catechism is, is to include uh, things like instruction in the Apostles' Creed, which gives us these list of propositions, these ideas about God and God's revelation that then will impact what we, what we do. I think today when we come to look at this other traditional component of our catechetical history, which is the Ten Commandments, we get a little bit of the, the what do we do about it? So if you believe all these various things, what are, you, what are you going to do about it? And how do you go about doing the things that you believe? And so the, the Ten Commandments give us a bit, of a, a bit of a grid or a bit of a guidance, I think, for, for structuring our, our actions and showing us an appropriate way to express those things that we believe. It's not, 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 not good enough just to kind of like have a bunch of thoughts about God. You actually have to respond and, and do something about this as you go about doing things in the world. And I think it's a pretty obvious fact that you are just going to do things in the world. You are just going to get up in the morning, you're going to have your breakfast, you're going to go to work, you're going to meet with people, you're going to do all kinds of stuff. What guides those doings? What guides those actions? We're going to do something. Why are we going to do those things? And what kinds of things are we going to do that might link up with these things that we say that we believe? So we're thinking about this connection between our thoughts, our ideas about God, and then our actions, how we go about uh, living uh, in the world. And um, in, in a sense, you guys remember back in the day we had those WWJD bracelets, you know, what would Jesus do? It's kind of kitschy evangelical culture, uh, subculture there. Um, but in a sense, I think that's not terribly far off. Becoming like Christ, the section in our, in our catechism, is a lot like what would Jesus do? That is, like, what is it that the God-man, the God-human being, God incarnate, how would he act? What would he do in various kind of situations? And of course, his actual life, as recorded in the Gospels, gives us a bit of what he actually did. So we have that sort of a principle by which we can apply to our own kinds of situations. Because so far as we know, in the Gospels, Jesus wasn't living in 21st century North America and didn't have a cell phone and you know, email and all that kind of stuff. So we can't look at what Jesus did in regards to these things. But we can extract, so to speak, principles or ideas um, about how Jesus' posture was towards those he interacted with, people, and also to, towards God. And this gives us a framework for ourselves then and the actions, the ethical behaviors uh, that, we, that we engage in. And by ethical, I just mean like the stuff we do. There's this whole domain of philosophy studying ethics and what's the right thing and the wrong thing. And I think that's helpful to reflect on. Um, but really, when we talk about ethics, it's just what are we doing? What are we doing every day and how we talk to people and how we see people and how we drive our cars and how we do our business and how we you know, make money and spend money and care for people who are in our care and et cetera, et cetera. These are all the, the behaviors, the doings that we hope will be flowing from our, our, being, um, our belonging to God, our belonging to Christ. And we hope is patterned after then the example that Christ has given us. So I'm actually going to start um, thinking about justification and sanctification, which uh, we find on page 111 here in, in the Catechism, because I think that's a little bit more of a helpful way of thinking about how the Ten Commandments give us a, a, a framework for our our ethics, a framework for our behavior. 
is rather than seeing the Ten Commandments as like these, uh, these do's and don'ts in order to like achieve some kind of a goal, if we start thinking about our justification, that is our belonging to Christ, then we can see the Ten Commandments more as just sort of like guidelines to help us to express what it is that's already true about us, that's already belonging uh, to Christ. So um, we don't get a definition here of justification in, um, in, in the catechism. We do get one of sanctification. So I'll just give you my definition of justification, sort of a Lutheran one here. But the, Luther, the, uh, the justification that we receive in, in, in our conversion and our being accepted by Christ is this, is this word that, that Christ speaks to us, this declaration, which gives us a right standing before God. God and he in his accepting of us and his in our in our conversion declares us to be righteous and belonging to Christ we are joined by the holy spirit in a union with Christ but we don't just stop there there's as luther said there's two kinds of righteousness there is this external righteousness that god just puts upon us just declares that we are righteous if we are in christ then we are made righteous but also what Luther calls uh, our own righteousness, our own proper righteousness, which is the, uh, the, the response that we have to our being declared righteous that then grows and manifests through a lifelong process of being healed, by our, by our, healed of our sins. And this is what I think the catechism gives us here in terms of our definition of sanctification. So uh, number, question number 364 um, this healing, this healing of our, of, our, um, of our disordered souls is called sanctification, which means to be made whole and holy. To be made whole and holy. So you can sort of think about the uh, sanctification as, uh, in a sense, like the, uh, the solution to a problem. Um, one of the problems we have is that we're, we're, we're disordered, we're broken, sin has has messed us all up and, 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 and caused us to be sick and, and incomplete and uh, all manner of, uh, of out of order. And what happens in this declaration of righteousness is that we're, we're, we're declared to be righteous and then our sanctification, we are reordered and reconfigured and, and put right and healed of the ways in which we have been uh, marred and damaged by, um, by sin. And this is a, a work of the Holy Spirit, as the Catechism goes on. By the work of the Holy Spirit, my mind, will, and desires are increasingly transformed and conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. So that's maybe a little bit of a uh, sort of techie theological way of saying WWJD. We have Jesus Christ, who is the perfect human being, fully God and fully human, and that through whom all things were made. That is, he is the perfect human, and he is the origin from which we come as well. This is what John's prologue uh, to his gospel tells us, as Rob alluded to earlier on. He is the word who, through whom we were made. And our, um, uh, us as being made in the image of God, I think Christ is the perfect picture of that image. Colossians 1 says this, and so does, so does Hebrews 1. So we have this picture of the perfect human being, and this is the, the standard for our thoughts, our behaviors, and our, and our actions. And by the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Christ, we are transformed and conformed. That is, we are, we are made after the pattern of Christ so that we are being renewed after this, this perfect image. Uh, Athanasius in his, on the Incarnation has this lovely image of like, um, 
he talks about like if you have a, a, a beautiful piece of artwork and you have a portrait or what, whatnot, um, you know, maybe the Mona Lisa, or just imagine some kind of artwork. And, and if it gets damaged, you know, someone scrapes it all up and it, it, it's, the canvas is torn or someone splashes paint on there, who knows what, like it's all marred and, and disfigured. Um, how would you go about cleaning that? Well, he says one way you might do is you might have the original person, the, the portrait, the, pic the person whom the portrait was of, resit for, for a new portrait. And that's what kind of Christ is. Here is the, the human nature, who, who we are as humans have been marred and destroyed. But we were originally painted after Christ, created after the word. And so in the incarnation, we have this, this resitting of the image of God as a human being. And we've, there's a repainting of, of, of what it means to be a complete and whole human nature that takes place um, in the incarnation. And so as we are joined to Christ through our justification by the Holy Spirit, we are too being remade and returned to this, this image that has been marred and, and destroyed and, and, and disfigured um, in the past. And so our, our sanctification um, is, is a response. Our actions are a response to what God has done in Christ in the incarnation and what God has done to us in declaring us righteous. And uh, number 361 gives a nice little um, uh, picture, I think, here of, uh, of this sort of process. Page 112, 361. God has reconciled me to himself and freed me from bondage to sin in order to conform me to the image of his son. As I live each day in gratitude for God's forgiveness, I seek to turn from sin and follow Christ in loving obedience. So for me, I think that that baseline of gratitude is a really helpful way of thinking about all the doings that we do in, in the Christian life. It's, it's, it's not a doing in order to just like you know, tick off boxes or, or in order to earn some kind of like prize or reward or something like that. Rather, it says here, uh, we live each day in gratitude for God's forgiveness. You know, gratitude is not the same kind of a, it's not the same kind of an owing as like a wage. You know, we do, we do owe gratitude. If someone gives you something, you know, you, you, you owe a word of thanks or what, what not. Like that's kind of a, a standard kind of response. But it's not the same kind of thing like a wage. You know, if you go to a job, like you're, you're owed your wages. And that's something that you, you earned. But typically we express gratitude when we receive gifts that we haven't earned. You know, you get something for free and you respond by, by expressing gratitude. I think our life of sanctification ought to be seen here as an, as an expression of gratitude. It's like each day and each action, each behavior we're doing is like a little thank you, a little thank you to God. You know, I'm doing this right now because I'm, th I'm grateful. I'm doing this right now because I'm thankful to God. How can I, uh, and so, so as we think about that, I think we, we, we can start with this like baseline of gratitude to God and from which from that then flows, as it says here, uh, our turning from sin and our following Christ in loving obedience. Now then do I think it's helpful then to turn to the, the Ten Commandments, again, not as things that we have to do in order to achieve some objective, but as sort of like guidelines or prompts for how we can be grateful. You know, sometimes I'm not quite sure how to thank somebody. You know, my, I, uh, my, my grandmother's 90 
some odd years old. And so um, she's instilled in us grandchildren to write thank you notes whenever she um, you know, gives us a present for birthday or whatever. It's a very good, polite thing for us to uh, have learned. So I know from my grandmother, how do you express gratitude? You know, I write a note and I, and I, uh, and I send that to her. Um, but sometimes we get things where we're not even quite sure how to like express gratitude. You know, it's like it's too big a thing or it seems kind of like trite to just say, hey, thanks for like, you know, saving my life or something like that. Um, what, what uh, the catechism is setting out here is that our entire lives, our entire behavior, all the things that we do are ways of expressing gratitude to God for our forgiveness and for renewing our image after the sun. And so the Ten Commandments are a little, like these little prompts of like, well, you, know, you could write notes or you can also not kill people. And that, that's uh, how the Ten Commandments uh, can kind of function. Um, so uh, so let, let, me, let me pause there in terms of just kind of framing before we jump into those. Any, any questions on kind of like that, sort of how I'm thinking about how these function as a mode of helping us to become like Christ or responses to them? Okay, cool. So, um, and to further kind of like um, downplay the sort of like uh, Ten Commandments as actually commandments, the word that we have for commandments in Hebrew is kind of a polyvalent kind of word. It sort of has multiple kinds of like uh, expressions. And it, it's just the simple word that means word, debar. Um, so we can sometimes in some traditions they're referred to as the Ten the ten Words, which is a much more sort of neutral phrase than we're used to. I mean, commandment seems like this you got to do this like kind of a thing, and it seems a little heavy-handed at times. So you could just think of these as the ten words, or the ten guidelines, or the ten modes of expressing gratitude to God uh, if commandment feels too kind of like uh, heavy-handed. So I'm just going to like uh, walk through some of these, note them, and then I just uh, picked out a couple of the catechism questions that I thought were sort of striking or, or interesting, um, and then... Uh, and we can definitely have conversation as we go along uh, if you want to push on anything in particular. So the Ten Commandments, we find these in a couple places in, in Scripture. These, of course, were given to the people of Israel out at Mount Sinai. Uh, we use this sometimes in our worship, say, in kind of penitential seasons, like in um, uh, during Lent. Uh, I don't think we did it in Advent this, this year, but it's sometimes used as a like a you know, liturgical um, way of kind of calling to mind those ways in which we maybe have failed in living our lives as an expression of gratitude. But again, we sort of see this as a way of uh, a mode of helping us to express that gratitude to God. So the first commandment, page 93, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods before me. You might think we're starting here with one of these beliefs uh, again. And in a sense, we are. In a sense, we have this bedrock monotheism. You know, there is one God. There is only God. But I think when we start sort of probing this question of, like, what a God is in our, in our conception of our, uh, in our theology, I think we see that there is an inherent or kind of an implicit demand on our, on our doings when we say that we, we have a God. What does it mean to think about a God, whether we're talking about monotheism or some sort of other world religion? Some kind of like power that is like bigger than us, that is stronger than us, that demands something from us, demands our allegiance or our worship 
or our obedience. I think when the Ten Commandments starts out here saying that the Lord, your God, the Lord is your God, and you shall have no other gods before me, we were saying that this one, this, this, this individual God is the supreme God, the, the only God, the one who revealed himself to Israel and then later on revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ and through the Holy Spirit as well. This is our God who demands then these various things. The concept of God demands our um, obedience and allegiance, dedication, devotion, and, and worship. And I thought uh, 272 was kind of interesting uh, here as an exposition of this because, I don't know, it seems like perhaps in contemporary America we're not exactly like tempted by some sort of like uh, pantheon of other gods. I, I don't know very many Zeus worshipers these days or, um, you know, we don't have a whole bunch of like uh, polytheistic gods running around. I mean, we do have encounters with uh, other religions, Hindu and whatnot, that has a, a polytheistic kind of conception. But... By and large, I'm guessing here in the western suburbs of Chicago, you know, like, hey, yeah, we, we got God. We're, we're on board with some kind of, like, monotheism. Even, like, pop American culture uh, tends to have this, um, what's the sort of phrase there, moralistic therapeutic deism. That's the kind of the, the phrase that was put on the early 2000s there, that most Americans are kind of like, you know, functional theists, like, there is a God, but maybe that God's not too engaged in what's going on here, and so I'm just going to kind of, like, take care of things myself until I, I need something, you know, so... If I want like a little Santa Claus God in the sky, I can have that. You know, if I, or if I'm really having a hard time, maybe God's gonna like be nice to me or what have you. But by and large, I kind of like function as though there weren't a God. But what happens then? Well, then it seems as though we actually have other entities that then take the place of God in our conception or our framework of reality. So 272 says, "How are you tempted to worship other gods?" And my, my thought is here, we're not always tempted to word, worship like, uh, you know, named gods. But the catechism goes on and says this, I am tempted to trust in myself, trust in my pleasures, my possessions, my relationships, and my success, wrongly believing that they will bring me happiness, security, and meaning. I'm also tempted to believe superstitious and false religious claims and to reject God's call to worship him alone. And that, I think, is a much more pernicious problem for us. Maybe not tempted to go worship, you know, Krishna or what have you, but we may be tempted to worship our pleasures, our possessions, our relationships, our successes. These seem to be like the gods of contemporary 21st century North American capitalism that we are far more easily tempted to be worshiping. Maybe not, you know, in, in, in bowing down or, or giving... Uh, you know, or, or, or you know, we don't like incense our cars or something like that. But what's going on, like you know, uh, in our conception of how we then behave, our our doings, and that's where things can kind of like go the opposite direction as well. Sometimes our our doings are reflective, reflective of some of the thoughts that we have that we weren't quite aware of. So you might think you believe in God as the only God. But then what are your actions actually doing? This is something that we always, I think, sort of struggle with. Am I actually acting as though God were the true God? Or am I acting as though my, my job or my publications or my 401k or what have you is really what's going to give me security, happiness, and meaning? And this, I think, is somewhat related to the second commandment. The second commandment, as you know, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above 
that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Here too, do I, do I think that perhaps we're not as tempted to as explicitly uh, break this guide or this word as maybe those in the ancient Near Eastern uh, cultures were. You know, we don't set up Asherah poles and statues of Baal and whatnot. That doesn't tend to be what's going on here, again, in the Western suburbs. But idols need not just be stone images or wooden images that we bow down to. Idols can be all manner of things that are related to these other kinds of gods we may be tempted to worship. For instance, 279, are idols always images? No. Anything can become an idol if I look to it for salvation from my sin or comfort amid my circumstances. If I place my ultimate hope in anything but God, it is an idol. At which point even ourselves then can become idols. And that might be one of the more uh, um, rampant sorts of uh, gods that we have in our culture. It's not God out there. It's, 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 it's me. I'm the one who's doing it myself. I'm the one who is taking care of me. I'm the one who's looking out for me. I'm where I find my security and my hope and my, even my salvation. And that point about hope, I think, is, is really key as well. And this is 2, 280. This commandment um, teaches us that our ultimate hope is in God alone, for he alone is God, and he made me. I must not look for salvation and fulfillment in myself or another person or my wealth or occupation or status or any created thing. Only in God will I find perfect love and fulfillment. And so that designation or distinction there between created things and uncreated things. God is the only uncreated thing. And yet we, by our, by our worship, sometimes place created things, idols, whether they're actual wooden images or whether they're ourselves or our possessions in the place where God should be, which then um, uh, are indicative then of a, a failure of the belief, the failure of our belief in, in monotheism. Now, I did want to uh, highlight kind of a, a second note here about um, the making of images. So 278 says this, are all images wrong? And we do get this sometimes in the Christian tradition. We have kind of an, an anti-image uh, stream within some segments, especially of, of Protestantism. And one might think that the second commandment would, would license something like that, which would be kind of um, sad for us since we have lots of images around in, in our building. But the, the catechism specifies this, no, God forbade the making of idols and the worship of images yet also commanded carvings and pictures for the tabernacle depicting creation. Christians are free to make images, including images of Jesus and the saints, as long as they do not worship them or use them uh, superstitiously. The, uh, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the seventh of uh, the seven uh, councils, was about this kind of specific issue here, whether or not we could make images of God, or, of Christ uh, specifically. And, uh, and the council d decreed that, yeah, yes, we can. In fact, it's actually, it's actually a, uh, an endorsement of Christ's humanity that we can make images of Christ for one of the things about humans is that we have bodies and, and you can depict bodies, you can, you can paint bodies. And so that there are images, icons of Christ uh, is, a, is, a, is in fact an endorsement of our belief that Jesus Christ is fully human at the same time as being um, fully God. 
And so the church has long said that we, it's not a violation of the second commandment to make, to use images, just artistic images, as well as images in, in our worship, whether they're murals and, and, and uh, 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 frescoes and icons and the like, or, or anything that we might use as an expression of our worship of God. Number three. The third commandment is this, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. How is it that we fail to honor God's name? This commandment is, is, is tied, I think, to what we say in, in the Lord's Prayer every Sunday or even every day for some of us. Hallowed be thy name. That's sort of the, the, the opposite side here. Don't take the name of the Lord your God uh, in vain, but instead hollow it, hold, make it holy, honor it, respect it, treat it with uh, with, with due respect. Um, how might you use God's name profanely? Question uh, is answered here. By the, by the unholy use of God's holy name, especially during perjury, blasphemy, and attributing to God any falsehood, heresy, or evil deed, as if he had authorized or approved them. I think that ought to be kind of a warning to us about what we say God has told us to do, what we think God is sanctioning in our actions and our behaviors, individually and collectively. I think I'm charismatic enough to think that sometimes God does tell us to do things, and sometimes God does lead us directly by his Holy Spirit. But we want to be careful with that. We want to be careful with that, because if we're wrong about that, and that does seem to be a violation of this commandment here, doing something in the name of God that God didn't actually instruct us to do. And so my thought is we're always wanting to check these uh, specific instances of words from the Lord with the other things that God has said elsewhere in Scripture, through the tradition, through our community as well. And if you do come to something that seems as though God has said to do it and all these other uh, avenues corroborate that, then I think with confidence one can go forward. But one ought to be careful about doing things in the name of God, lest we end up taking the name of the Lord our God uh, in vain. Now, theological tidbit here. So oftentimes you see um, the word Lord in like these small caps. It's here on page 97. Or, it's right, yeah, 97. And uh, you see sometimes in our, in, our, in our Bibles, Lord in small caps. Um, that's a, uh, a, a sort of a, um, what's the word? We use a word for another word. It's like a code for the name that God revealed to Moses there in, in Exodus 3 in the burning bush. You know, Moses is like, or God says, hey, go tell my people, you know, I'm going to get you out of Egypt. And, and, and Moses says, like, well, who are you? Who do, who do I say is the God that's going to be liberating these people? And God says, I am. Tell them that I am sent you there. So YHWH is the Hebrew or it's the English letters that then refer to the Hebrew letters there, uh, these, four, uh, these four letters, which um, in, in, in Scripture then, we don't often, even our English translations, we don't actually translate that in a I am sort of a way or what would be the sort of like English equivalent of that. Instead, following the Jewish tradition, tradition we use Lord as a means of not, uh, uh, of not saying the name that God has revealed um, in uh, in Egypt, or sorry, in, in to Moses when he was going to be bringing the people out of uh, out of Egypt. And but in but in sometimes we can sort of think about this Lord there as almost kind of like the proper name of God. 
God's kind of a weird term in that it both means like a person and also means like a, a, a kind of thing. You know, we, you, we use God for any sort of divine or supernatural being, and we use capital G God to mean like the highest one of those kinds of things, if you think there might be other ones as well. But when God revealed his name there as the Lord, he was giving himself a sort of personal designation in conjunction with this, uh, with this uh, revelation of what kind of thing he was, that is, that is divine. Um, I had a, a Jewish teacher when I was high, in high school who she wouldn't write G-O-D on the board. She would write G-D for fear that just writing the name of God would somehow be a, a mode towards dishonoring uh, God. And, um, uh, and, and some other Jewish uh, scholars I've worked with sometimes refer to God simply as Hashem, which just means the name in, in, in English. So, you know, Hashem, oh, you mean the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that, that, that God there. And I don't know that one needs to be that uh, extreme in being cautious about how one uses God's name. I think we can refer to God as God, and we, in fact, refer to God as, as our Father. But I appreciate sort of the pedagogy of, of that sort of like framework there, wherein there is a deep respect for who God is and what God has revealed about himself, and the sacredness even of, of God's name. Number four. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Um, what does it mean to keep the Sabbath day holy? Sabbath is from the Hebrew Shabbat, which means rest. And holy means set apart for God's purposes. God commanded Israel to set apart each seventh day following six days of work for rest and worship. Well, now how do we think about this and what this kind of like, what, what, is this, what does this teach us here? Recall, we're making kind of connections between what we think and what we do. So here's an action here, taking one day off of work or living a life of like rest, a life of, of Sabbath, or ensuring that there are certain boundaries to our, to our lives such that work doesn't permeate all these various other aspects of, of who we are. What does that say about what we believe? Can we work backwards a little bit? Well, I think it's actually reflective of God being the creator and God's continuing providence of the world. That is, when he rested on the seventh day, when God rests on the seventh day, God was sort of saying, six days are enough. I've made what I want to make in these six days. On the seventh day, uh, I rest. But he is the originator of all that exists. And we, by acting, by reflecting this sort of truth, further acknowledge that. Okay, God's the one who has made everything, and God's the one who's continuing to be in control of everything, so I don't have to do it all. It's not all on me. I'm not divinely, providently sustaining the world such that if I, like, nodded off and slept, the world would fall out of existence. I can take a day off. I can take a day off following God's um, pattern, but also then trusting that God is the creator, and God is the sustainer of all things that exist, sustainer of all that, that goes on. Um, what I think it also does for us, one thing I also thinks, oh, right here, uh, what does the Sabbath teach us about time? Thinking about time here, the Catechism goes on and says, through an ordered life of weekly worship and rest throughout the Christian year and by a regular pattern of daily prayer, I learned that time belongs to God and is ordered by him. 
I said before, we've got, most of us have so many calendars that we like our, our, our servants to. We've got the fiscal calendar and the academic calendar and the church calendar and, you know, the NFL calendar, whatever it is, you kind of like order your life around. We have all these calendars, you know, and some of us have Google calendars, we have all kinds of color codes of things. I have a whole rainbow on my Google calendar of like the various, all of the things that I'm like, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm subject to. But all time belongs to God, and all time is ordered by him. And the Sabbath, the Sabbath practice, I think actually gives us like this first indication in the early pages of Genesis of uh, of a life of liturgy. We have a liturgical worship hardwired into our conception of the week. One day for worship. And by this one day for worship, this one day, this, this ritual, this regular habit, I think from that we end up being able to spin out other regular habits, regular habits of daily prayer, regular habits of feasts and fasts that we can commemorate. I think our, 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 our Christmas celebrations, our Easter celebrations, our church calendars are all kind of reflective of and flow out of this Sabbath principle of having a regular pattern given to us by God, a regular pattern given to us by God by which we show forth that God owns the time and we want, if we can in modern life, to align our calendars, most importantly, with God's calendar before we fill in lots of other things that make the demands on our, on our time. Yeah, question? Go ahead. Yeah, right. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great point. So let me yeah, clarify how, I mean, at least how I sort of think about this. And there is dispute in the Christian tradition about how we're supposed to think about this. And you certainly have certain Christian communities where it's like, you, know, you, you take this as a literal day, you know, Sunday is the day where we're, all the shops are closed, you don't do anything, you know, really fat up following what we see with, you know, some of our, uh, in the Jewish tradition as well. So I am kind of more inclined to see the Sabbath as, um, uh, as tied in with, the, with the, the, the eschatological victory that Christ has brought about through his resurrection. That is, in a sense, like we're always living now in the victory of Christ. We're always living in the Sabbath that has been inaugurated by Christ's death and, and resurrection. So I, I'm in agreement that like every day is, is Sabbath. But I also think that's hard to keep in mind. And so having a bit of a pedagogical tool, kind of like a learning device or a, an object lesson of actually taking one day helps us to reinforce that belief throughout the rest of the other days. So it's kind of like you don't have to take one day for a Sabbath in order to practice Sabbath. But taking one day helps you to practice practicing Sabbath, if that, if that makes some sense. At least that's kind of how I see it. And, but then we do have, I think, you know, we do have this appropriation of the Jewish tradition of having one day set, aside, set apart for worship in our weekly celebration of the resurrection. So we have, you know, we have moved worship as we Christians coming out of the Jewish tradition have moved our primary day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Well, what's up with that? Well, that's because we all, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection. Even in Lent, every Sunday is a celebration of the, of the resurrection. We have this great 
collect here that sometimes I pray in our preparation before, um, before our, our worship here. Oh, oh God, you make us, it's on for, for Sundays. Oh God, you make us glad with the weekly remembrance of the glorious resurrection of, our, of your Son, our Lord. Give us this day such blessing through our worship of you that the week to come may be spent in your favor through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, yes, in, in that I think our whole lives can be an expression of Sabbath, but also there is something helpful about attuning ourselves to the pedagogy of one day being dedicated to the worship of God in various capacities um, that can be, I think, really helpful to help reinforce this, this conception. And I think how you take Sabbath, I think, can be in different ways, both in your life as a whole and on a certain day as well. I mean, for some people, you know, being out in the yard and doing manual labor might be a very restful thing if you're sitting in front of a computer screen all day long, whereas if you're out doing manual labor all week, maybe you should sit in front of a computer screen on, on Sunday or vice versa. So I do think there's some freedom to kind of like relativize what rest and Sabbath might mean, as long as one is understanding that to be under the umbrella of, of worship and of, of dedication to God. If that, I don't know, helps. Yeah, Sean. Um, I'm processing the concept of guidelines as opposed to how I normally think of standards yeah. as I come to this question. I have a colleague who recently pointed out to me that the Sabbath commandment is positive, whereas most of them are negative. Uh, I happen to be a huge fan of Sabbath, so I'm trying to keep that fact out of this. But is it significant that the Sabbath is do this thing instead of Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know how significant that is. We do have the command to honor your father and mother, which is another sort of one that's relative to that as well. And I tend to think of these, these words as actually kind of all being a bit two-sided. You know, you can kind of like interpret it in a negative, don't do this. But, all, but the ones that say don't do this have kind of a positive correlative, I think, to them. You know, like, like don't murder. Well, the correlative to that is is love your neighbor as yourself. You know, we get this in the in the golden rule. You know, or you know, don't commit adultery. The correlative of that is like be devoted to your spouse or to chastity if you if you're not married or what have you. Same thing with the Sabbath. Keep the Sabbath also means don't do any work on that day or don't do any work. You know, it, that 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 transcends or uh, 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 violates that sort of like Sabbath principle. So um, that's kind of how I think about it as kind of like two sided sort of thing. So I'm not sure there's a I'm not sure there's a significance to that. Maybe, maybe there is. Uh, I don't know that I would say it's a commandment to work for six days in that sort of specificity, but I think we do have, as a response to, as a, grat- as a grateful response, we do have the uh, commandment to, um, uh, to work in the world, to do things for the production of, of, of the world, to, to, to live in this space that God has given us to do. I mean, when, when, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave him tasks to do, before the fall, so like work and engaging with the world, and I think industry and art and, and, and letters and all the kind of stuff that we these are all not a not a not a result of the fall. These are all things that humans are supposed to do, just in virtue of being and being humans. So whether you do that on six days or, or, or five days, you know, we work our four day weeks or whatever. That's that's the new thing, right? Um, I, I'm not sure that's that's the main uh, consideration, but 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 living a life that is productive for God and God's kingdom, I think, is kind of the correlative of or a component of a correlative of taking days of rest. Um, five, in, in, in five we begin to kind of like take a little bit of a, a, a shift. So um, 
again, we kind of think, the, uh, think liturgically here. So during Lent, we often read the Ten Commandments. Um, but every week, not in, in Lent, or most weeks, we, we uh, liturgically say the summary of the law, which is to love the Lord your God, our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The summary of the law here is basically like the summary of, of the Ten Commandments. Uh, right here encapsulated in these two commandments that, God, that Christ gave us, do we see uh, these, these guidelines to love God and love our neighbors. And then likewise here in, in, in the fifth commandment, we sort of like pivot from things that are a little bit more focused on loving God, you know, having only one God, having God as the God, honoring God's name, keeping God's Sabbath here. And we switch then to loving our neighbors. So number five here, what's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and, and your mother. Um, I, what does it mean to honor your father and mother? I should love, serve, respect, and care for my parents all their lives and should obey them in all things that are reasonable and conform to God's law. And I think this also actually, in my mind, uh, sanctions a care for any who are older than us. There are many who are our parents, our fathers, and our mothers who aren't biologically related to, related to us or legally related to us. But I think we have here sort of like a, a, a sanctioning of an honoring anyone who is older than us. And that entails care for them, and that entails love of them, that entails respect for them as well. And this is like part of a like sort of like Christian ethic that we have of honoring all those who have uh, come before us and continue on uh, older than us. Now, what's that kind of a reflection of? I think, what's the think there? Well, recall again in, in, in Genesis, God made all people in God's image. And as all human beings bear the image of God, the image then of Christ, as we talked about earlier, and so all humans then are, um, uh, are, are worth our respect and, and our dignity. I think sometimes that can be kind of hard to hard to see, and particularly in a culture that maybe prizes things like youth and vitality and energy and whatnot. And so maybe perhaps for us in our culture here, this is a particular reminder that that which is valuable is not just those things that, uh, you know, contemporary society tells us is valuable, you know, good looks and, and, and strong bodies and whatnot, but actually God tells us here that there's a particular value to those who are older than us that calls forth our respect as an act of, of gratitude for those things that, for those that God has made. Number six, what's the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. What's murder? Murder is the willful, unjust taking of human life. Um, And like I said before, here we can kind of see the negative and, and the positive, you know. Yeah, don't, don't murder, that's like the, the, the real negative side. But what's, what's the positive correlative to that? Well, it's like what Jesus said in the summary of law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Murder seems to be the exact polar opposite of love. It is the, the failure of love, the, the uh, annihilation of love. The, uh, the complete repentance from love, the turning away from love, all the way towards the ending of a human's life. The exact opposite of valuing a human being's life is to seek to end that human's life. But we don't just seek to do that in explicit ways. Lord willing, none of us are tempted towards that sort of end there. But 3.11 says, how did Jesus extend the law against murder? 
Jesus taught that this commandment also forbids the vice of ungodly anger. A, a murderous heart can lead to hatred, threatening words, violent acts, and murder itself, and is counter to God's life-affirming love. So we can see our, our, our behavior towards individuals, our behavior towards other people, our, our ethical actions, uh, maybe fitting into this sort of like grid here. Is it, is it promoting the love of an individual, or is it promoting what ultimately is the death of that individual? And in our hatred, and in our indignate, I don't know, whatever is less than, less than hatred, even, you know, it's sort of like you're on a, you're on a, a, a on a fence or what have you, kind of teetering on a fence, and our behaviors and actions towards people can kind of like just lean one side or the other. Are they leaning towards the ultimate end, which is the love and the value in that individual, or are they leaning towards this way? And even if you just lean a little bit, where's that end result? The end result is, is the murder that's being, pro, pro, being prohibited here in this commandment. And so instead of, uh, in, 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 in order to avoid this negative, we think we, can, think we can focus in on the positive, which is seeing people as made in God's image, as being honored by uh, Christ becoming like us. Every human being is, is doubly honored in terms of being made in the image of God and then being that kind of creature that, that, that God deigned to be incarnate in, that is human beings, and therefore is always all worthy of our, of our love and our, and our respect. Yeah, please, Annie. Indeed, yeah, that's that's spot on here. Uh, Three ten. Um, what other actions are considered murder? Genocide, infanticide, abortion, suicide, and euthanasia are all forms of murder. Sins of murderous intent include physical and emotional abuse, abandonment, willful negligence, and wanton recklessness. These are all things that are on this trajectory, you know, falling over into this particular area, and they're all things that are governed by this prohibition and also then therefore the opposite of which is governed by our promotion of them, our love of them. Yeah, speaking up for those, let's see, that, uh, this comes up in the ninth commandment, I think it is here, something along those lines. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get there in a second, but uh, 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 thinking of like um, not bearing false witness, kind of the positive correlative to that, you, you might say it's this, I must speak the truth in love, reporting crime, speaking against injustice, and advocating for the helpless. I think those are kind of, I mean, they're definitely related in terms of what's the motivation for doing that. Well, it's the promotion of and the love of these individuals, who, especially those who can't speak for themselves or who have been, um, yeah, not given voice. That's a great reminder. Thank you. Seven. Um, what's the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What's adultery? Adultery is any sexual intimacy between persons not married to each other, at least one of whom is married to another. But again, thinking about like these negative and positive correlates here, I think the positive correlate here is to be is 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 devotion to one's spouse, completely and wholly. And now, why? What's what's going on there? What what's the point here of this sort of sexual ethic? 
Well, it, it stems in part from the definition of marriage. So 322 gives marriage as this. Marriage is the exclusive, lifelong, covenantal union of love between one man and one woman, and a reflection of the faithful love that God unites, uh, that God, that, sorry, that unites God and his people. Marriage is therefore holy and should be held in honor among all. I think we have this great picture of marriage as as an, as an icon, as a sacrament. We talked previously about sacraments being the outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace or an inward and spiritual reality. Well, what's going on in marriage? Well, actually, marriage, the husband and wife, man and woman coming together, that's the outward and visible sign. But as Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, the inward and spiritual grace is actually uh, showing forth the union between Christ and the church. That's the, that's the, the sacramental relationship there going on with, with the sacramental expression of, of marriage there, is that we have this picture of Christ and us in the church being unified together. This is, a, you know, this is our spiritual reality. It's what happens in justification and what in our sanctification we're trying to grow into. And then marriage, this joining together of, of, of others, um, shows forth this union that is, that is possible um, between Christ and the church. Um, and what, a, what, a, what adultery does then is it just, it, 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 it completely violates that. It's a, it's a disordered picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. This is an abandonment by one or the other uh, a, a spouse, which is, which is not going to happen in, in the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ will never leave us or forsake us. Christ is covenantally, intimately bound up with us in the church, and we are, or we are intimately bound up with Christ as well. And then marriage shows that forth. But but a marriage that doesn't show that forth because of adultery is therefore violating the sacramental picture that has been established as what marriage is, uh, one component of what marriage is, is for. 323 also goes on to say, God, what's marriage for? God ordained marriage for the procreation of children to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, for remedy against sin and to avoid sexual immorality, and for mutual friendship, help, and comfort growth in prosperity and in adversity for the benefit of family, church, and society. So there's a little bit of that relationship between what do you think and what do you do? What do you think? We think that Christ is completely united with the church, and the church is united with Christ. And these two opposites, these two opposed, have come together in a spiritual union. And then the way in which we reflect that, that the do there is in the uh, the sanctity of the marriage relationship. But 328 highlights this as well, which I think is important for us and one that we sometimes forget in 21st century Protestantism. 328, are some called to lifelong celibacy? Yes, God calls some to an unmarried life of faithfulness and chastity. This calling enables them to devote their lives to God's service without the responsibilities of marriage and family. I think sometimes we've forgotten uh, in maybe it's just kind of an anti-Roman Catholic sort of a thing, I don't know, in Protestantism. But actually, Paul in 1 Corinthians totally uh, sanctions a celibate life, one that is devoted to God. So there is not only one way of living out one's, uh, one's, one's sexuality. There is marriage, and then there's celibacy. And that's an equal and, and as-honored vocation that Christians can be called to uh, in their lives. And I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know what, if it's 
20th century sort of like conceptions, or again, anti-Roman Catholic sort of conceptions of celibacy, but there's been this kind of like nervousness, I think, in, 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 in Protestantism against uh, you know, those who are single and those who are called to a celibate life. Okay, what, what's wrong with them? They haven't got married or something like that. You know, that but that's totally in violation of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians and totally in violation, I think, of our, of our tradition as well. Being called to a, a devoted, celibate, chaste lifestyle for one's life is as honorable a vocation as being called to marriage and, 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 and having children or caring for children as the, as the Lord leads. And so I think it's important for the church, for us in the church, to support both of these vocations. We need to support those who are married because it's a challenge to be married. It's difficult to live with somebody even as there is benefit and support as well through marriage. And it's a challenge to live alone. It's a challenge to live a, a, a celibate life. And the church is to be coming around both these sets of people, both these categories of, of people. And we all fall into one of those categories at some time or another in our lives or in our entire lives um, to support and to nurture and to provide the context in which we can live out this calling, this vocation that God has given us to be devoted first to him and then to one another through these two means. Eight. The Eighth Commandment is, you shall not steal. Um, why does God forbid stealing? God is creator and Lord of this world, and all things come from him. We say all this, I love that little bit in the liturgy, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. What a reminder we need all the time. You know, every time I look at my bank account, I probably should be saying, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own I have given, given you, lest I think like, oh, this is mine, you know. This, no, 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 it, it, none of it is mine. None of it is ours. God is the creator and Lord of this world, and all things come from him, and we only give back to God what is already his. And so stealing in all kinds of, all kinds of ways, uh, which this catechism lays out there, all that is just, it, it's, a, it's a failure of belief that this stuff belongs to God. It's, it's, a, it's a failure of believing that God is the creator and the sustainer of the world. And I think in some ways it's a failure of trust as well. You know, insofar as we are still called to like work in the world and do stuff and, and, and take the, what has been given to us from the world, and whether that's in our you know, agriculture or industry or our other you know, economic uh, adventures and, and whatnot, we're called to, to use what God has given us for God's glory and for, I think, our benefit as well. But there are, there are limits to that. And if we go beyond these limits to the point of where we're taking other people's stuff or taking things that aren't belonging to us, that aren't rightfully ours, then I think it's indicative of a lack of trust and a lack of belief that God is the true creator of the, of the world. What things besides property can you steal? I can steal or defraud others of wages, identity, credit, intellectual property. This is more of a, this is a 21st century catechism here. I'm sure Calvin wasn't talking about intellectual property, but we, yeah. um, cheat in school or on my taxes or fail to pay my debts. I must, that I, I must repay and to the best of my ability restore what I have, what I have stolen. Um, 338 gives us a little bit of a, uh, uh, you might say, a pedagogical tool for reminding ourselves that not everything is ours, and uh, uh, sort of like a, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of like a training ground for avoiding stealing, which has to do with tithe. What's an appropriate standard of giving for you as a Christian? 
Catechism says this, a tithe, which is 10% of my income, is the minimum standard for giving, of giving for the work of God's church and the spread of his kingdom. Yet I should give generously of all that God has entrusted to me. Now, here's my own theology on, on tithes and, and whatnot. I just, I, it's my own, my own sort of view. The, I see that the 10% there is kind of like another one of those like guideline kinds of things. Not like one has to do this in order to like, you know, tick off some box or something like that. Um, but rather it's a, it, it's a, in a similar way as like our entire, all of our time should be a Sabbath. All of our time should be living in the eschatological victory of Christ. All of our money belongs to God. All of our resources belong to God. All of our income belongs to God. But sometimes we need help reminding ourselves of that, or we need, we need to be reminded that all this stuff belongs to God. And so setting aside a, a particular amount that you just give away, you give to the church or other charitable organizations or however you want to do that sort of a thing, is a way of teaching us and reminding us and drilling down into our minds and into our souls, this stuff's not mine. All things come from you. And if I'm tempted to like hold on to all of it, then I'm not actually showing that forth. So I think the 10%, it's, it's a good rule of thumb. It's, it's, it's a guideline. It, it's, it's helpful. And, and at times in our lives, I mean, certainly in times of my life, 10% would have been, um, there wouldn't have been any food on the table if we were giving 10%, so back in seminary and, and, and whatnot. Um, and for some, that's really, that's really difficult. What do we see in, in, um, in the widow's might? You know, she gives her little two pence there. That, that's like everything, um, and, but it's a very tiny, small amount. For some people, you know, maybe 10%, that's not enough. You, you, you don't even think about it, you know? If you've got Elon Musk kind of money, you know, you can just buy Twitter or whatever, you know? You, you, you could be giving more than, more than 10%. You, you know, probably, probably you give 99% at that point, and it's still going to be more than my, than my 10% by, by, by far. But again, it's a guideline. I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, uh, it's a rule, not in terms of like rules to fall, but a, like a rule of life kind of a thing. It's like a, a guidelines for our, our behavior. How, do we, how can we use this as an expression of our belief that God is the creator, God owns all things, all things that we have belong to God, and we cheerfully and we gratefully and we joyfully give back to God those things that are, that are God's. I'm also not sort of like hardcore on like how you give these things. This is my kind of view. I think giving to the local church is important. Um, I think giving to other church bodies is helpful as well. I think even other charitable organizations is, is, is a good thing also. I mean, the, these are all various ways in which we give back to God or using your money, not even an explicit kind of like, you know, to donating to a charitable organization. And we can use uh, bits of our money that we dedicate to ourselves, just like caring for the poor, or inviting people into our homes or, or et cetera. The encouragement is to think about how are all things coming from God, all things belong to God, and how can we give them back to him for the work in the kingdom? Yeah, there's a question in the back. Yeah, sure. Is that right? Yeah, right. Good. <laughs> Easier if you're living in college, I suppose, and have all your donut, all your meals provided for you. But yeah, no, I thought that's good. That's that's helpful. Yeah. Okay, we'll wrap up here in a couple minutes. Just want to get to nine and then ten. Uh, ninth commandment: You shall not bear false witness against your uh, neighbor. Um, uh, and, and this uh, related, we were talking about earlier, 346. So it's not just it's not, just not lying. You know, that's kind of the negative correlate, like, you know, don't lie. What's, what's the positive correlate? Speak the truth in love. We have that in the New Testament. Um, 
report crimes, speak against injustice, advocate for the, the helpless here? How can our words be, be, uh, be used as, a, as an avenue for God's truth, God's uh, shalom, God's peace going into the world? sort of only halfway to just not say something, you know, false. How do we actually move beyond the, the negative towards the positive side, which is promoting truth and promoting love as well? Um, and then the tenth word here, you shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. What's it mean to covet? Covet is the disordered desire for what belongs to another or what I'm unable to have by law, by gift, uh, or by right. And again, I think this is indicative of a kind of failure of belief. We're not trusting God. We're not believing fully that God is the sustainer, the provider of all things. If we think, I really want to have that. I need to have that. That's going to make me feel good. That's going to make me feel secure. Those things that other people have is going to make me feel satisfied. No, you've got, you, there's something wrong here, right? It's a disordered conception of the world, a disordered belief, and it's a disordered desire that gets manifested then in the, uh, this sort of covetous, desirous attitude here. But Jesus taught us not to seek anxiously after possessions, but to put our trust in God. And he showed us how to live by taking the form of himself a servant, loving and trusting his Father in all things. So in sum, we are, we are declared righteous by God. This is our justification. And our, our response to this free gift is to live a life of gratitude. That is, we're going to do things in the world that are hopefully conforming to, or we're, we're striving for those in the power of the Spirit, be conformed to the pattern that Christ has given us in his life. And the Ten Commandments is an expansion of the law that we get summarized when Jesus gives us the summary of the law, give us these guidelines for modeling our ethical behavior, our engagement with each other, our engagement with God on the pattern of Christ that then leads us to our sanctification. Uh, that's all we probably have time for. I'm happy to hang out here and chat a little further if you have questions. Otherwise, you're all free to go. Thanks very much. Thank you. Oh, thanks.